Hi, my name is Aisha and I'm the Education Manager at the Linnaean Society. Our podcast will be taking a short break for the summer months. So for this podcast, we have chosen our favourite episode from the last six months, A Revolutionary Guide to Sex, Evolution and the Female Animal. This podcast was first published in March and included a 40-minute interview with Springwatch presenter Lucy Cook. The podcast is all about her book titled Bitch and the insightful reframing of the female animal. Linnaean. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of, of London. 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 Linnaean Society of London. Uh, my name's Lucy Cook, and I am the author of Bitch, a revolutionary guide to sex, evolution, and the female animal. And this is a book that examines how female animals were marginalized and misunderstood by the scientific patriarchy, starting with Charles Darwin and the revolution that's happened in the last few decades uh, that is redefining the female of the species and the very forces that shape evolution. In your personal life and work, did you find there was a very specific view on gendered behavior? Um, And when writing this book, did you want to change that? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, there's just a horrendous double standard out there, isn't there? And, you know, I, I mean, I'm I'm amazed by how the sort of the popular image of, of the female is is still wrapped up in Victorian thinking. It's still this idea that that females, you know, or feminine qualities are are, you know, to be motherly and nurturing, um, but competitiveness, aggressiveness, sexual promiscuity, none of those are considered seemly for a a female, um, of whatever species, humans included. Um, So, yeah, I I felt, um, you know, it was really important to write this book because, you know, we've now made such sort of you know, leaps in our understanding of, of what is feminine in the in the natural world. And I think it's really important that 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 women and men understand this. Oh, yeah, when I read the book, The Matriarchal Societies that you um have in it, and one thing I was really shocked about was how brutal and violent some of them are, specifically the lemurs um, and meerkats and naked mole rats surprised me as well. So what do you think it says about our enduring pre- preconceptions of femininity in our society that we still find it really shocking that females could behave so brutally and violently? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm as mystified as you, you know, I mean, I suppose that's a question for a for a social scientist, isn't it, really, why we believe we're so wedded to these ideas as as humans that that females are, are meant to behave in a certain way and males are, are meant to behave, you know, in, 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 in another way. And um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't really, you know, know why why it is that that these you know canards persist but they do and um you know i mean i i think you know particularly when it comes down to sort of this this idea that females are not meant to be competitive or aggressive i mean it's positively laughable when you when you know about meerkat or mole rat society and them and they're incredibly brutal um creatures and and you know arguably much more aggressive and violent than 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 males i mean if you take um you know warring 
you know, elephant seals, for example, they're a classic kind of, you know, terrifying, you know, I'm sure some males die in the process, but, but, you know, when it comes down to, you know, female mole, naked mole rats fighting over who gets to be the next queen, you know, they will die, the, the, the losers will die in the process, you know, and there's everything to fight for in that moment, because it's the only chance they'll get to reproduce. So, you know, I, I think that the, the, the examples that I found of, of competitive females in, in particularly in the cooperative breeders like like meerkats and, and naked mole rats. I mean, they're far more violent and aggressive than, 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 than males are. The most interesting ones was the fact that they had the highest murder rate um, of meerkats. And um, I think you in the book you even mentioned it's higher than human beings. Yeah, I mean, this is just, I mean, this was a sort of a gift of a, of a, of a study that I stumbled across because, um, yeah, it was, it was about, it was within the last decade, somebody did a, uh, an analysis of 1,000 mammals looking at which species was most likely to be killed by a member of its own species. And of those 1,000 mammals, humans were included on the list which everybody would assume would come out number one. You know, the most homicidal species would be humans. But no, we're not. It's actually the meerkat that, that is the most homicidal species on the planet. In fact, one in five meerkats are likely to be killed by a member of their own species, most likely their own mother um, or sister. Which, because it's the females that are that are that are that are the that are the most murderous, because you know they are wanting to monopolize all the resources that the dominant female wants to monopolize all the resources and and co-opt all the other members of the group into helping her breeding efforts. Um, and if any of the other females in her group, which she's related to, will be her daughters and sisters, um, you know, get, get knocked up by a roving male, for example, then she will kill their babies, um, which are likely to be her own grandchildren or or you know off grand offspring or 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 cousins at least and um and um you know then then the, the females that, that 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 have given birth are 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 evicted from the the den uh, and of course in in the kalahari eviction is tantamount to murder um but they are able to return to the den if they um wet nurse their murderers um pups instead i mean you know that level of of dark brutality i mean there's nothing you know there's nothing elephant seals have got nothing on that you know i mean it, it's just it's, it's it's astonishingly violent and 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 um and competitive You talk a lot about how media itself, it's not just these antiquated Victorian views that we're battling against, um, uh, like Madagascar's um, interpretation of a King Lima um, or what would happen to Marlin um, in Finding Nemo. Yeah, it's a lot about the media's interpretation of this as well. So, um, And I think you mentioned Meerkat Manor. Yeah, I mean the media is very much to blame, and I mean I'm I, I'm very aware of that because I you know I've worked in uh, natural history documentary filmmaking for years, you know, and I'm very aware of what gets commissioned and what doesn't get commissioned, and the commissioning editors they they don't want to tell these stories, they want to perpetuate these stereotypes. I mean I find it absolutely maddening, and and now when I watch television I, I end up just screaming at the tv i mean they had the mating game on television recently on on the bbc and i just was like yelling at the television as you know they just told the same old story you know these sort of dominant males battling for possession of the females who may or may not be coerced 
you know, and there was no hint that females had a sexual strategy of their own. And that might involve mating with multiple males. You know, I mean, all of this is completely ignored. It's like nobody wants to tell this story. They want to remain, you know, fem- and, and so the media is very much to blame. And yeah, I mean, the, the example with, um, uh, you know, um, Madagascar, the movie is just positively ridiculous, isn't it? Because, you know, in, in the in the movie, Madagascar, uh, is 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 ruled by a fast talking male king julian but you know you go who's the king of the lemurs you know you go to madagascar king julian's nowhere to be found you know he's he's down the bottom of the tree getting beaten by queen julia you know because they're a female dominant society 90% of the 111 species of lemur are female dominant yet the producers didn't if if they knew about that didn't see fit to tell that story because it's more appropriate to tell our children that males are in charge throughout the whole book there was a lot of challenging of um gender stereotypes over lots of animals um do you think there's anything that we as a species the human species can learn from how we view gender stereotypes from um you talk about the very dominant uh, female spotted hyena or um the fluidity like the gonadal fluidity of the european mole my book is about bias you know essentially and how bias how 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 bias has shaped our view of the animal kingdom and that is i went in search of sexist bias which i was you know aware of um and then what i actually found on top of that was heteronormative bias which was actually the bias as a, as a straight woman you know that i suffer from and i realized that, and it was really shocking to me actually to realize that you know i used to think of myself as quite liberal but yes my I view the animal kingdom through a certain you know prism as well you know and it, it it's maybe not as restrictive as as Darwin's Victorian pinhole camera was but but it's still restrictive and so I think you know the fact that 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 Darwin was was biased and he's a genius a brilliant scientist should be a, a red flag to us all that you know we've all got to check our biases you know so and you know I I, I was obviously taught you know that 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 sex is a binary, um, and and what I discovered, and, and which really shocked me, uh, and and I really struggled with as I was writing the book, was just the sort of the realization that that you know yes there are two gametes. There's a you know there's a sperm and an egg. So in that sense sex is binary if you define sex by 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 whether there are there are eggs or sperm but the manifestation of sex is anything but binary i mean you know the book is full of creatures that that um you know either have gonads that you know you 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 can't you you can't say they're either male or female so you you can't you know they 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 sort of sit in somewhere in between and and that's for a variety of reasons i mean you know there are common frogs in there, Rana Temporaria, that we all have in our garden. You know, I had no idea. I was obsessed with them as a child. And many of these um, frogs, it turns out, you know, they have genetic sex determination, but they also have environmental sex determination, which can override the genetic sex determination. So you end up with XX uh, males and and XY females, and, and their gonads are... In, completely impossible to, to classify as male or female you know so this this you know that's just one of, of many examples they have examples of creatures that change sex and and all sorts of things and so and, and you know and 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 it just became very obvious to me that it's a very very complex thing and I think you know our culture is binary and and sort of requires sex to be a binary thing but what I discovered is that is that 
you know, as I said, that, that the manifestation of it is, is incredibly complex. You know, by seeing the variety of the female experience in the animal kingdom, that can help us discuss it as humans, because, you know, with animals, it's not as loaded with culture as 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 it is for humans. And these are all conversations that we're really struggling with, whether it's you know, sexist or heteronormative bias, whatever it be, you know, we are we are struggling with these conversations. And I think by understanding how diverse females are in the animal kingdom and understanding that the role of diversity, you know, that, that all variation is normal because, you know, if you didn't have variation, you'd cease to evolve and we don't want to stop evolving. So so I, I, I would hope that, that it, it, you know, one has to be very careful not to fall in the trap of certain, you know, evolutionary psychologists who say, oh, because lobsters do that, therefore humans do that. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that, but I, I think it's about understanding the scope and variety that's out there and the complexity of sex. And then and then and then and, and then realizing the role of that complexity and, and variety in, in humans. And that sort of these deterministic labels are are just redundant, you know. And we can't we can't do the interview without, of course, discussing female clitoris. And with again with the female spotted hyena, that to all you know appearances, it's you know it's long, it's hard, and it it would appear to be like a penis. And a lot of animals do have genitalia that would normally be assumed to be male. Absolutely. So, I mean, if you know, if you're trying to sort of classify a female, you know, but, you know, there's there's sort of like the sort of standard set of ways, which I discuss in the book of how you, you know, you might um, define a female. So whether it's by her genitals, well, that's not going to work because, you know, the spotted hyena, as you say, has a clitoris that's exactly the same as the male. Well, I mean, visually, it's very similar um, to the male penis. And, and she even has a sort of a full scrotum. Um, and in fact, there was one paper that was written, said the only way you could distinguish a male or a female um, hyena was by palpation of the scrotum, which strikes me as something of a last resort, given the animal is known for its ferocious bone crunching bite. I might just take a guess. Do you know what I mean? I've got a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Do you know what I mean? It's like not already a story you want to do. But but you know, so that's the standard way that you might so you can't really tell. And that way, similarly, that the, the 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 dominant lemurs, they 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 also have a peniform clitoris. Um Actually, I find that terminology sort of really grating as well that, that you know, because given the fact that the original sex was female, um, then surely uh, the male has an enlarged clitoris, not the female has a pseudo penis. But anyway, um, uh, but um, uh, yeah. And then and then, of course, gonads, that's another standard um way of, of 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 saying and i've already mentioned the the, the frogs but the um the, the the european mole as you mentioned is is a fantastic example of that i mean it's an, I, that story blew my mind you know because we think of mammals as you know the gonads you know we're aware of of species and fish you know there are 500 species of fish that are able to change sex within their lifestyle but you sort of think like in their lifetime but you know, you think of, of of the gonads of mammals as being fairly fixed affairs. You know, they're either, you know, they're either ovaries or they're testes um, and they don't change. Well, the European mole blows that out of the water because it turns out the female mole has gonads that are described as ovo testes. And during the 
breeding season, um, she she makes eggs. Um, and uh, but there is a huge amount of testicular tissue, which outside of the breeding season swells. So it's actually greater than there is ovarian tissue. Um, so that and and that and that's then produces a lot of testosterone, which makes her incredibly um, aggressive and, and and a ferocious digger. So. And and now we you know there's been a sort of you know decoding of the of the mole genome and now we understand how that's possible and it's actually just something like the um the the, the proteins that, that regulate the genes I think it's just two two of those that that that, that allow this this sort of gonadal flexibility and and actually go when you go into the the genetics of it that's where it all these these stereotypes and it it all becomes much more obvious why you know, putting deterministic labels on males and females is is ridiculous because th this is the thing that really, really, really blew my mind was when I spoke to Dr. Jenny Graves, who's been studying sexual differentiation and determination for like 40 odd years. She's decoded the sex genomes, of, sex genes of everything from platypus, which have five X and five Ys um, to, um, to nematode worms. I mean, she's done it all. And she's thought about these things very hard for a long time. I mean, I asked her to tell me about, you know, the, the pathways to becoming male or female. She sent me this um, diagram of this extraordinary machine with all these kind of cogs and wheels and little blue balls pinging between it all that would get squashed and then spat out. And she's like, that's the pathway, right? It's anything but linear and distinct. Like we always thought the pathway to becoming male or female were, 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 were two linear and distinct pathways. But actually, what it turns out is that they are, they're not that at all. The, the pathway to becoming male and the pathway to becoming female are utterly enmeshed and one suppresses the other. So they're antagonistic. And more than that, the genes that make an ovary or make a testes, other than the trigger um, for, for that, which is, you know, in humans, the presence or absence of the SRY, but other than that gene, the genes that actually go on to make an ovary or testy, they're the same 60 genes. I, I mean, I had to ring her three times to ask her that question because I just I just couldn't believe it. You know, that what you're telling me that it's a set of androgynous genes that are responsible for making an ovary or testy and they're involved in this, you know, antagonistic, you know, these two antagonistic pathways. And when you understand that, it all becomes much more obvious why you have creatures like the mole why 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 sex is so plastic and and why labels of of these sort of deterministic differences about males and females are completely obsolete when i was reading the book it shattered a lot of um different preconceptions i had about the female of the species um i think one of my personal highlights was reading about the cannibalistic female spiders with my favorite being um I've, the uk's very own rat spider um did you have like obviously there's so many fantastic examples and if it's possible did you just have one that maybe really stands out so so when you see a spider in a web that's probably a female. The males are just these sort of often just kind of like wandering sacks of sperm that don't live for very long. They they don't have fangs. They don't have venom, you know. And um, what they well, they they just try, their only purpose is to have sex and try not to get eaten in the process. 
I, I couldn't resist 50 ways to eat your lover as a chapter title. You know, what was fascinating is, is that some species, the redback spider, where the, the males actually do this suicidal somersault into the fangs of the female. You know, this was a sort of seemed like an incredibly counterintuitive thing. Like, why would the male actually encourage his own demise if he manages to, to fertilize the the female's eggs in you know before he he dies and they can be incredibly quick about that um then you know he's obviously nurturing those you know he's he's providing energy for for, for those for those eggs and so that's actually sort of rather than a death wish or, or you know an inexplicable death it's actually an act of extreme parental care on on his behalf and and actually um the it, there was a study done that found that that there's something uniquely nutritious about eating a member of your own species but it was really interesting to find that you know uh, i think it was the olive baboon you talk about who held the offspring upside upside down and ended up actually causing life-changing injuries to it yeah, this this was chapter was very important for me, the chapter on motherhood, because I, I am one of those women who's chosen not to have children. I, I just have never felt maternal. And I and I've always felt like a bit of a freak as a result of that. I mean, I'm and and so, you know, I was really curious to find out about the maternal instinct and you know did it do, you know does does this really exist and 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 you know it there is an ins, a, a maternal instinct but it needs to be triggered so it's not something that that women are you know females are born with it it needs to be triggered and actually Catherine Dulac has has found that the, the actual the, the 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 neuronal architecture behind that 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 switch for parenting and it exists in males and females. So, I mean, that's amazing, right? So first of all, that's, you know, that, that males are able to be just as nurturing as females, which I think is a really important message um, uh, for people. And she's convinced that that neuronal architecture will be the same in, in humans as it is in, in mice. It's been found in mice and frogs. And then but the other thing, of course, is that, you know, motherhood is, is is there's there's a lot to learn you know and I mean I've got plenty of female friends who have really struggled with with motherhood and, and feel you know society really shames women for feeling like they they they're not good mothers you know and um you know it's really hard there's a lot to learn and it's not just if you're a human there's a lot to learn it's the same if you're a baboon so as you said yeah I mean Jean Altman did this incredible you know work 40 year study on olive baboons which has been uh, huge revelations in in what being a mother involves and and she found that olive baboons that, that the females have, have got to learn how to suckle saying it's not easy they've got to learn how to carry an infant and keep up with the troop you get no downtime you give birth and then the troops on the move you know you've got to keep up and and that's really difficult you know um and she she called them dual career mothers as she recognized that you know they, they've got to female baboons have got to sort of earn a living plus be a mother at the same time you know and that's hard and 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 it requires learning and 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 the firstborn is 60% more likely to die than subsequent babies um uh which is a statistic that she found um you know which i think is it's really important that these that information is out there because you know that that's you know, there's 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 no need for those olive baboons to be shamed. They're just on a steep learning curve. And as 
it's tragic as it is that their babies may not, their firstborns um, may not make it because they, they, they haven't learnt the ropes yet. I, I think it's really important to recognise these things. And, and I think that this idea that, that women are imbued with a, a, a maternal instinct from the moment they're born is incredibly damaging. It's one that still perpetuates, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we're talking a lot like this is stemmed from Victorians and sometimes people forget that was 200 years ago. Yeah, um, I was a bit worried at the time I'd written quite a dark chapter about mothering, but I actually I've had a lot of a lot of women who, who are mothers themselves have been really grateful for the honesty of it, actually, and have found it just a relief to know that that, you know, the struggle is real, whether you're human or baboon. Throughout the book, I really sense this um, your your relationship with Darwin, for lack of a better word, of both hero, um, but flawed human being as well in his thinking. Which I think is going into the twenty first century is how we're going to look at a lot of the explorers, naturalists, and scientists that we we looked at. If you could sit down right now for five minutes with Darwin and talk to him, what would you ask and why? Oh, that's a great question. And how I would love to do that. I'd love to know if he really believed man was superior to woman. I mean, that's what he wrote in The Descent of Man, clear as day. Ultimately, man has become superior to woman as a result of sexual selection. And did he really, really believe that? Uh, I I don't know. I mean, I... I, I felt a gr- I felt really conflicted about you know I studied evolutionary biology, you know Darwin's my Jesus you know I mean I, I, I it, it, discovering that his science was flawed was very difficult for me because you know he is such an incredibly meticulous scientist um. And I felt guilty about, you know, criticizing him. I felt, well, first of all, you know, because, you know, I mean, incredible as it seems, in this day and age, we're still having to defend evolution itself. So being critical of it, you know, first of all, I was like, oh, you know, that's difficult. You know, do I want to be critical of of Darwin? Don't want to give, don't want to give the creationists any rope to hang him with any further, you know. But I think you know there's no point pretending that everything's okay in the house and and let's all just move on not and not look at the the racist and sexist comments that are laced through the descent of man um and and actually i think you know it's really important to recognize that that you know the science is vulnerable to bias you know and 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 goodness knows i mean you can't get a better scientist than darwin and, and like i say if if he's you know, vulnerable to 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 being, you know, influenced by cultural bias, then as I say, it's a red flag for all of us. You know, but you do get these these sort of tantalizing hints when you read his more obscure work, like his work on barnacles, where, you know, he and, and, his, and his private letters, like it, there was a one brilliant um sort of insight where he writes to, I think it's Hooker he's writing to in, about barnacles. And um and he's talking about how he's found these um, you know these big hermaphrodite females, and then these t- teeny tiny little complemental males, and and then he's found sort of, you know, in between type uh, um, that, 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 that are neither they're, they're sort of in between these these big female hermaphrodites 
female stroke hermaphrodites and, and these complemental males. And, and he writes to Hook, he says, you know, you, you will think my, my theory, um, you know, to the devil, you know, for, for, for so sacrilegious to not only be suggesting that, 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 that evolution is possible, but evolution between sexual, um, you know, sex between male and female or hermaphrodite between is, is possible. But, but so he, he knew that there was complexity there. Because you even mentioned that he was, um, I won't say bullied, but I'll say heavily pressured to even that he's always coined with um, survival of the fittest to sum up evolution. But in fact, um, as you mentioned in the book, that wasn't his his wording. He was pressured. No, that was Herbert wrong. Spencer. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't him. He didn't say that. And 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 that phrase has caused so much damage. I mean, it's just like, because people think that, I mean, it's a brilliant piece of branding, isn't it? Survival of the fittest. Everybody knows it. Oh, evolution, survival of the fittest. You know, Darwin never said that. <laughs> and people don't understand what fittest means. That's the problem with it is that, you know, as zoologists, we understand fitness means, you know, it is, is, is about reproductive fitness and, and about offering off, survival offspring to, to reproduce. But most people see that as fittest, as in biggest and toughest and, and most competitive. And so, you know, culturally, we're obsessed with this idea of like competition and alphas and 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 it's and and a lot of it is around this misunderstanding of something that Darwin didn't even say. And actually, that's what my next book's gonna be about, is is actually gonna tease that out more. It also reminds me of my favorite fact in your book about barnacles was the length of their penis they have is it is that true they have the the largest penis in um comparison to their body size i i believe so i don't think anybody's found a bigger penis since darwin found that one himself you know and which he described as coiled like a great worm um and um you know he was sort of giddy in his descriptions of it it's really fabulous in his in his barnacle monocles that he that he wrote um yeah it's eight or nine times the length of the the, the, the body of the barnacle so it's um it's the longest relative to body length in the animal kingdom and obviously you know it, 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 sex finding a sexual partner is quite difficult if you're you know cemented to a rock by your head um so the barnacles solution is to be to have um you know sexes that are that are hermaphrodites but also the males um have these extraordinary penises which can go roving looking for a sexual partner um even when they're glued to a rock um it's a sort of as i say in the book like a kind of x-rated mr tickle <laughs> slightly frivolous but I couldn't resist it growing up on those books I have a, a fantastic imagery just from that one there uh, that one sentence <laughs> um you also talk about how we've evolved in our thinking especially as more and more um women uh, non-binary um trans and other members of the LGBTQIA community have started looking at these species and studying them with a new lens um but do you think that's as done or is there a lot more headway that we still need to make in these scientific discoveries and our own thinking about them as well uh, no, I, I think we're sort of in the middle of a paradigm shift, actually. And I think there's a long way still to go. I mean, um, I know that um, the, the numbers of LGBTQ in, in, within STEM are still very low and and and, and a lot of them leave. Um, so, you know, it, it's still, you know, but, but diversity is the key to, to finding the truth. I mean, you need diverse um, you know, questions coming from diverse places you know and science is all about asking questions and it, it took 
pioneering women like Sarah Blafferhurdy and Patricia Goati to, to start questioning Darwinian stereotypes from a female perspective to overturn these old sort of sexist stereotypes, which, you know, is, is an ongoing. I mean, that's been going on for 40 years and it's still not over. I mean, you know, there's still you know, huge amounts of debate around Bateman's paradigm and, and, um, and, uh, and, 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 and females. And, and so the sort of, you know, as, as for heteronormative bias, you know, I think we're, we're sort of really just beginning to, to start with that um, journey. And, you know, I, I spoke to this, you know, brilliant scientist, Lauren O'Connell, Connell, who's at Stanford, who, who actually found the switch for parenting in, in frogs. And she said to me, she thinks that this, you know, by having, people of um you know different um you know a, a, a range of you know sexualities and, and genders coming into the science and asking questions from their perspective it is going to be the next revolution you know so she she feels very much that that is something that we're 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 just sort of on the cusp of which is really exciting you know for us to sort of understand the kind of that, that this isn't that sex is incredibly complex and also incredibly plastic i think is you know it, it is it's it's it it's it's these are exciting times there's a lot to play for and 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 obviously you know diversity is is key and all that and actually not just in in sex um uh you know sexuality and gender also in terms of where people are from and the languages that people speak i mean i think that you know just the fact that english is the predominant language in science you know restricts it and and you know culturally you know science is you know zoology is is dominated by not just sort of you know white men but white men from the Western world, you know, from these sort of post-industrial um, cultures. And, you know, if you go to other cultures, you know, there's completely different views of, of, of sex and sexuality. So, so I think, I think having, you know, a, a diverse, all, you know, all diversity, we need diversity of, 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 of cultures and, 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 and geographical diversity and, and even language is, is, is going to help science. and monogamy as well was something that was another really interesting one it's again brings us back to this Victorian housewife of women stay home have one husband and that's that's their lot and I think you touch on the end of that chapter about how um human beings are socially monogamous um and I suppose to me I wasn't quite I've never heard the idea of socially monogamous does this mean that I suppose biologically you think we were monogamous or it's more of a cultural influence um with certainly with songbirds you know you know songbirds have been thought of as sort of you know the paragons of monogamy for so long and they you know they you know they you, because we see them we see them you know we watch them from our houses and they look like they're so like us you know the male attracts a female and then they build a nest together and they raise the chicks together but it turns out that that they may well be socially monogamous, but sexually it's another story. They are not sexually monogamous. And and um, and uh, Patricia Goati was the first to do DNA um, testing on a clutch of eggs and found that it, a clutch of eggs has multiple fathers. Of course, when she presented this information um, in the 1980s at a conference, um, an ornithological conference, uh, a, a very well-known uh, male ornitholo ornithologist told her that the only way that that was possible was if the females were being raped. 
there was no way that the females were were actively seeking um um matings outside of the partnership um and it took bridget stutchbury and other um other scientists to put radio trackers on the back of hooded warblers and various different songbirds to establish that females were in fact leaving the territory and actively soliciting sex with males um in order to 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 to, to, to address that, the, the females weren't being coerced. They were actually, you know, their own sexual agents. They have their own sexual strategy and that involves mating with multiple males. And of course, as though it may seem, you know, unlikely to, to male ornithologists that females are doing this, but to Patricia Goati, she said, it's a no brainer. I mean, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, you mate with multiple males, you greater the genetic diversity is therefore, you know, the, you know, better chance of hitting the genetic jackpot so you know it, it's it, it that's why it is just sort of important to, to have to have different questions from different people from you know asking these questions but it just shows the layers of prejudice you know that that nobody wants to accept these you know these stereotypes are so woven into our cultural thinking especially I think for a lot of birds have long been romanticized as poster children for the ultimate um I think you mentioned in the book as well that they they even call it a divorce rate yes they um, do yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah the divorce that. rate yeah I mean penguins are a classic that everybody always thinks of penguins as like you know that march of the penguins really did a number on on penguins you know everybody thinks of it. but the divorce rate most most penguins are not monogamous and actually divorce rates get um they get, uh, I think they get, they, they get, they get higher the, the, the further you get away from the, um, the, uh, the pole. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's, I think, I think it's something like only seven percent of, of of birds are are considered sexually monogamous, and I bet that number is going down all the time. Even swans are unfaithful. Not swans. You can't go for swans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the albatross story is brilliant for that because. Um, the albatross, obviously, a great symbol of a heterosexual monogamy, aren't they? I mean, you know, they, you know, they are one of the birds that 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 can pair for life. I mean, some of them um, do, but not always, you know. And 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 that particular colony that I visited in Hawaii, a third of the of the of the couples that that are there are actually female female couples because there's a there's a shortage of males, and so the females are mating with um other with with male with males that are already in in partnerships and then because it's impossible to raise a chick by yourself and you can't you can't do it as a, as a single mum it's not possible with an albatross when you've got a chick that takes six months to fledge um you need to partner so they partner with another female and then both females will lay an egg only one of those eggs will will survive um but it means that the females are still able to to reproduce. Um, obviously, at, at half the rate of a of a heterosexual couple, because um, only one of those eggs will survive. So each season, only they only have a fifty fifty chance of their egg making it um, to to fledge. But um, as opposed to a hundred percent chance if they were to mate with a male. But it's better than not mating at all. So I met this one bird the scientists who've been studying it said you know they're just like us albatross you know you get some that will will, will, will meet a, a male and, and and stay with them for life some of them play the field and some of them will be happy in a same-sex relationship and and she introduced me to this one bird who had been with her partner a female um for 
17 years and they were amongst the most successful couples on the colony they'd had something like seven um chicks and 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 three grand chicks you know um and there she said their relationship just works and it includes all the same lovey-dovey preening and when they've been off on by themselves for six months on the wing when they meet they 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 coo and preen and moo and do all the stuff that that creates all that lovely bird oxytocin that makes their bond so strong and she said they're relationship just works they communicate well they're able to raise chicks well together and so and I found that you know that flexibility it's just incredibly heartening you know of course, but, and, and fascinating I and mean, of course of course it's going to be flexible why wouldn't it be you know but it's just that we see these things as 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 in in certain boxes you know but but actually it, it's a flexible system yeah, I suppose yeah it's, it's, it's incredible even when you say Exactly as you say, it's a monogamous relationship, but it's still outside the heteronormative monogamous relationship. So it's still people are like, oh no, it, and it 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 all goes straight back in, isn't it? They are monogamous. It's what you always wanted, and especially that heteronormative block is 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 most key with with species like albatross, where males and females are identical. You know, and and you you know who you don't know. I mean, in actual fact, with amongst seabirds, there's a lot of um, same sex partnering. I, I I believe somebody said to me that on a recent Attenborough, they had uh, two male albatross where the males had actually got together. So, you know, I mean, it's 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 very flexible. Just extraordinary privilege of of writing this, as I realised it was like. You know, getting to do a PhD and 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 choosing all my men, all these amazing mentors, and getting to to sort of pick their brains and 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 talk to them and and spend time with them was just just wonderful. Wow! And it sounds like it's about time to do it all over again. Yes. Yeah. I'm literally just about to start. Um, is going to be called cock and bull the great masculinity myth and about how we've misunderstood the role of competition and and um overplayed it over the years okay we are watching this space yeah cock and bull <laughs> people can follow me on social media i'm on i'm on instagram lucky cook l-u-c-k-y-c-o-o-k-e um and twitter who knows how long all of any of us will be on twitter but um ms lucy cook ms lucy cook um so yeah if you want to follow my adventures of cock and bull you can follow me there and um bye bitch definitely recommend it for any sloth fans as well the instagram account yes exactly (laughs) yeah there's a yes i've got a sideline and sloth so if you like if you like sloths then you'll be rewarded Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society. The Linnaean Society of London. 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 London.